and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. I haven't recovered from your last episode yet. I know. It's, did it give you nightmares? Yes. Because Dune sometimes gives me nightmares. Sandworms. Sandworms. Mostly the worm man. The worm, worm man is the worm really, man. Yeah, yeah. really did it for me. You know what? I'm going to give you a sheet of paper. I'm going to need you to draw that, that sandworm man mm-hmm. um, at, during our next break. Yes. Uh, yep. I have a blank one right here. Great. So, yep. Please use your sure powers. Will. And we will post that to both Facebook and Twitter <laughs> uh, on that episode. But, um, yeah, Dune's a lot. I know. Oh, yeah. So I was thinking, like, what's the opposite of Dune? <laughs> How about, like, a nice lady? Okay. <laughs> Yeah. Who wasn't so nice. Who was? Ooh. Mm. Who is this nice lady who wasn't so nice? Today, I'm going to talk about Dorothy Parker and the Vicious Circle. Ooh, I love that. I've always wanted to know more about Dorothy Parker because yes. I know she was... Same. <laughs> uh, she was like um, sassy and smart and had great one-liners. Yes. but And was a writer. But that's yes. all I know. Yes. So, Dorothy Rothschild was born in 1893 to Jacob and Eliza Rothschild near Long Branch, New Jersey, where her parents had a summer beach cottage. They properly moved back to Manhattan uh, within a few weeks, though, oh, so sure. that she could be raised in the city, uh, you know, properly. I, I wouldn't want anything else for my child. Uh, just before Dorothy's fifth birthday in 1898, her mother passed away. Um, and about after that, Dorothy wasn't very happy in her in her household. Um, her father remarried in 1900. Uh, Dorothy Dorothy hated her father oh. and she accused him of a lot of physical abuse. Um, she also despised her stepmother, whom she refused to call mother or stepmother, but instead referred to her as the housekeeper. Wow. <laughs> yeah. From like a young age. Oh, okay. So she started early. She's on like being eight like years a- old. And like- wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So uh, Dorothy attended a Roman Catholic elementary school on West 79th Street with her sister, Helen, um, even though their father was Jewish and their stepmother was Protestant. Well, she didn't really have an evil stepmother for long. Uh, her stepmother died in 1903 when Parker was nine. Uh, um, did she kill her? You know what? I You don't know? I don't know. Okay. Well, Maybe. in my head canon, Dorothy Parker Great. killed her stepmom at nine years old. <laughs> uh, Parker later attended Miss Dana's school, which was a finishing school in Morristown, New Jersey, and she graduated at age 18 in 1911. Um, following her father's death in 1913, she played piano at a dancing school to earn a living while she worked on her poetry on the side. Oh, wow. Uh, Dorothy Rothschild sold her first poem to Vanity Fair magazine in 1914, and she was later hired as an editorial assistant for Vogue. Oh. Um, and then she moved to Vanity Fair as a staff writer following two years at Vogue yeah geez man I wish it was that easy it just always seemed like way back when I think there were like less people or something that people were just like I started out as a secretary and then I was the editorial director of Vogue like what yep the most influential fashion magazine in the world on the planet sure just writing just writing away In 1917, Dorothy married a Wall Street stockbroker named Edwin Pond Parker II. Um, But they were soon separated by his army service during World War I. Apparently, Dorothy had always had ambivalent feelings about her Jewish heritage and later joked that she married to escape her name. Oh, wow. Um, And the pair actually didn't, they were, they split up like very quickly after after they were married, but um, they didn't officially divorce until 1928. So more than 10 years later. Wow. Parker's career took off in 1918 while she was writing theater criticism for Vanity Fair. Um, She was filling in for P.G. Wodehouse, who was taking a little PTO. Um, At the magazine, she first met Robert Benchley, who became a close friend, and Robert E. Sherwood. And the trio began lunching at the Algonquin Hotel on a near-daily basis, and they became founding members of what became known as the Algonquin Roundtable. All right? Yeah. Picture it. Um, oh, here New it comes. York, 1919. Oh, wow. The group that would become the Roundtable began meeting as the result of a practical joke oh. carried out by theatrical what? press agent John Peter Toohey. So he was annoyed at the New York Times drama critic Alexander Woolcott, who refused to plug one of Toohey's clients, um, just a little old playwright named Eugene O'Neill. Oh, sure. Um, so he, so Woolcott had, like refused to plug O'Neill in his column, and so Toohey organized a luncheon supposedly to welcome Woolcott back from World War One, um, but instead Toohey used the occasion to poke fun at Wolcott on a number of fronts. Uh, this was basically like a forerunner to like the roast. I was going to say, he yeah. set up a surprise roast for yes. this guy. Yes, uh, <laughs> But Wolcott's enjoyment of the joke and the success of the event prompted Tui to suggest that the group in attendance meet at the Algonquin each day for lunch. Well, uh, this is so much day. fun. Why don't we do this 
every, every day. day not once a week not no. you know twice a month <laughs> let's do this every day because yeah. this is so much fun <laughs> just roasting each other oh my gosh so the group first gathered at the Algonquin's pergola room later named the oak room at a long rectangular table as they huh. increased in number the hotel's manager moved them to the rose room which had you guessed it a round table Okay. Initially, the group calls itself the board and the luncheon's board meetings. Oh, sure, um, yeah. They eventually became known as the vicious circle, though the term the round table gained wide currency after a caricature in the Brooklyn Eagle portrayed the group sitting at a round table wearing armor. Oh. <laughs> so <laughs> charter true. members of the round table included Robert Benchley, who was an American humorist best known for his work as a newspaper columnist and film actor. Um, he's also kind of best remembered for his contributions to The New Yorker, where his essays, um, both topical and absurdist, influenced many modern humorists. Uh, Benchley also made a name for himself in Hollywood, winning Best Short Subject for his film How to Sleep at the 1935 <laughs> Academy Awards. <laughs> wow. Again, yeah. not that many people. Yeah. You could <laughs> win an Academy Award for a I movie called How to Sleep. What are you good at, Bob? <laughs> I'm, I could sleep. I'm really good at sleeping. Done. Have it on my desk by noon. Oh, my God. Another member was Ruth Hale. So she was a freelance writer who worked for women's rights in New York City during the era before and after World War One, And she was married to journalist Haywood Brown. So in early 1921, Hale took a stand with the U.S. State Department, demanding that she be issued a passport as Ruth Hale and not as Mrs. Haywood Brown. Yeah. The government refused. No oh. woman had been given a passport with her maiden name up to that time. Oh. Mm-hmm. What? So she was unable to cut through the red tape and the government issued her passport reading Ruth Hale, comma, also known as Mrs. Haywood Brown. <laughs> she refused to accept the passport and she canceled her upcoming trip to France with her husband as a result. She's like, fine. Uh, fine. I don't even mind. like it. Then. I'm not using this. In May 1921, Hale was believed to be the first married woman to be issued a real estate deed in her own name for an apartment house on Manhattan's Upper West Side. Oh, my God. The more the more I get the details of women's history the more I realize <laughs> that we were, <laughs> we are so close to uh, like temporally yeah. to we were property up until the yeah. 20th century yes. is absolutely bonkers to me. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. <laughs> anyway, Ruth Hale also founded the Lucy Stone League. Do you know about this? No, I don't. So this is an organization whose motto was, my name is the symbol for my identity and must not be lost. The group took its name from Lucy Stone, um, the first married woman in the United States to carry her birth name throughout her life. Um, so she, Lucy Stone was born in like 1818. She got married in 1855. Um, so, and she refused to take her husband's last name. Sure. So, so did um, I. <laughs> yes. So uh, the New York Times called the group the Maiden Namers, uh, but the league became so well known that a new term, a Lucy Stoner, came into common use, wow. meaning anyone who advocates that a wife be allowed to keep and use her own last name is a Lucy Stoner. Wow. Um, and this term was eventually included in dictionaries around the time. So again, women who choose not to use their husband's surnames are called Lucy Stoners. You and I are Lucy Stoners. Yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah, Lucy Stone. <laughs> so Hale's cause led her to fight for women to be able to legally preserve their maiden names after marriage. Um, she challenged in the courts any government edict that would not recognize a married woman by the name she chose to use. So Hale was like all about this, all about yeah. like women's rights and stuff. Um, and in 1927, she also took a leading role in protesting the executions of anarchists and accused murderers Sacco and Vanzetti. Oh, wow. Okay. Which we should cover them in a, yeah, in a whole other thing That's too. rich. Um, so also of the round table, Haywood Brown, the columnist and sports writer who was married to Ruth Hale. Um, he founded the American Newspaper Guild, later known as the Newspaper Guild and now in the News Guild dash CWA. Um, he is best remembered for his writing on social issues and his championing of the underdog. He believed that journalists could help right wrongs and especially social ills. Yeah. Haywood Brown. Good, Woo, good guy. Haywood Brown. Um, George S. Kaufman, a playwright and director, also a member, um, he wrote several musicals for the Marx Brothers, including oh. The Coconuts with Irving Berlin and Animal Crackers with Maury Reiskind, uh, Burt Kalmar, and Harry Ruby. Uh, Kaufman won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama for one play and one musical, You Can't Take It With You in 1937 and Of The Ice Sing in 1932. And he also won a Tony Award as a director for the musical Guys and Dolls. Hey, I was in Guys and Dolls. In high school. Look at that guy. Look, Look at, at that, that doll. doll. That's exactly it. You're totally right. <laughs> I was a stripper, by the way. That's what I was. I was a stripper. Yeah. I slid that clip. 
Um, all right. Then we got Alexander Woolcott. Um, he was a critic and journalist. And this guy's Wikipedia biography starts with, Okay. Alexander Wolcott was born in an 85-room house, a vast <laughs> ramshackle building in Colts Neck Township, New Jersey, known as the North American Phalanx. It had once been a commune where many social experiments were carried on in the mid-19th century, what? some more successful than others. What? What? That's the opening line of his Wikipedia oh page. My God. <laughs> what kind of experiments? I'm horrified by this. So uh, Wolcott helped to establish the Stars and Stripes newspaper, which was like the uh, newspaper of the army. Oh, okay, Um, yeah. He was also on staff at the New York Times, and he also worked at the New York Herald and the New York World. He was one of New York's most prolific drama critics. Um, He was banned for a time from reviewing certain Broadway theater shows due to his florid and often vitriolic prose. (laughs) Uh, Alexander Wolcott claims to be the namesake of the Brandy Alexander cocktail. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. And he died on stage while participating <gasps> in a radio broadcast about Hitler and Germany in 1943. Oh my God. Like this he was guy. on stage with all these other guys and they're like, Germany, right? Everything's very bad here. And then Alex? He- <laughs> <laughs> Just dropped dead? Yeah. Oh my like God. He had a heart attack while he was on stage and like, what a way to noticed. go. I don't know. Wow. (laughs) So other people that were members of the Algonquin Roundtable, like the official members, were Franklin Pierce Adams, who was a columnist, Mark Connolly, a playwright, Brock Pemberton, a Broadway producer, Harold Ross, who was an editor for The New Yorker, Robert E. Sherwood, an author and playwright, and John Peter Toohey, the Broadway publicist. Okay. There were also some what we'll call transient members okay. of the group. So they weren't like the core group, but like they were allowed to sit with the with yeah. the big kids. They didn't come every day mm-hmm. like everybody else, but maybe once a month or whenever they were in town or whatever. Yes. Okay. Uh, so first you have Tallulah Bankhead. Mm. So um, she was primarily a stage actress known for her husky voice, outrageous personality, and devastating wit. So here's the thing <laughs> about Tallulah Bankhead. Uh-huh. My mom had a friend growing up, uh, I, she used to come over. They would study together because they're both studying to be nurses. Mm-hmm. And she would always call me Tallulah because she said I acted like Tallulah Bankhead at like seven years old. I can see this. So I'll I'll take it any day of the week. Well, I mean, I'll get you the rest of her story. In oh, a no, second. please do. Please do. But, you yeah. know, her, what she's known for. Sure. Yeah. Um, so Tallulah was a member of the Brockman Bankhead family, which is a prominent Al- Alabama political family. So her grandfather and her uncle were U.S. senators, and her father served as an 11-term member of Congress, Holy cow. including as Speaker of the House of Representatives. Um, Tallulah's support of liberal causes such as civil rights broke with the tendency of the Southern Democrats to support a more typically aligned agenda, and she often opposed her own family publicly. Wow. Uh, Bankhead was capable of great kindness and sh- generosity to those in need, supporting disadvantaged foster children and helping several families escape the Spanish Civil War and World War II, oh my which we'll God. talk about in a little bit, too. Um, in her personal life, though, Bankhead struggled with alcoholism and drug addiction, and Uh-oh. she was infamous for her uninhibited sex life. So exactly like me. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I'm not seeing a That's difference. Spice. <laughs> um, also, a transient member, uh, Sir Noel Coward. Oh, wow! He's an English playwright, composer, director, actor, and singer, known for his wit, flamboyance, and what Time Magazine called a sense of personal style—a combination of cheek and chic, pose and poise. So gay. I see what you did there, Time. <laughs> uh, many of his works, including Hay Fever, Private Lives, Design for Living, Present Laughter, and Blythe Spirit, have remained in the regular theater repertoire um he composed hundreds of songs in addition to well over a dozen musical theater works including the operetta called bittersweet um also screenplays poetry short stories the novel pomp and circumstance and a three-volume autobiography uh coward's stage and film acting and directing career spans six decades during which he starred in many of his own works so that's amazing he's a guy to know also edna ferber so um, she's an author and playwright whose novels included the Pulitzer Prize winning So Big in 1924, Showboat from 1926 oh. that was made into the 1927 musical. Oh, yeah. Um, Cimarron in 1929 made into the 1931 film that won Best Picture at oh the Oscars. God, yeah. Giant in 1952 and Ice Palace in 1958. Wow. Ferber never married, had no children and is not known to have engaged in a romance or sexual relationship. In her early novel, Dawn O'Hara, the title character's aunt is said to have remarked, quote, being an old maid was a great deal like death by drowning, a really delightful sensation when you ceased struggling. <laughs> wow, so she was so like, good. I'm doing fine. <laughs> I'm living my life. I'm winning a Pulitzer Prize left and right. 
Another guy that hung out with these guys all the time was Harpo Marx. Oh. Okay. Uh, the comedian and film star. Sure. He was born Adolf Marx, but changed his name to Arthur in 1911 because sure. he didn't like the name Adolf. Well, but this was like way before Hitler. Anyway. Oh, sure, sure. He just didn't like it. Um, so he was like the clown slash pantomime Marx brother. Um, oh, he wore yeah. a curly reddish blonde wig and he never spoke during performances. He either would like blow a horn or a whistle to communicate. Uh-huh. Um, so by do you know the names of all the Marx brothers? Because I didn't. I, d- got, I didn't know them all before this. You got Groucho. Uh-huh. You got Harpo. Uh-huh. And you got oh, Mungo. There's three more. Oh, my God. There are three more? I thought there were only three. No, there's five of them. Uh, Mungo. You got Bungo. And you got uh, Beans. <laughs> <laughs> beans is the funny beans one. Beans is the funny one. So the Marx Brothers <laughs> were Groucho, Harpo, uh-huh. Chico, Chico, Gummo, and Zeppo. Zeppo. I did know Zeppo. Well, I mean, yeah. obviously it didn't yeah. come to me, but yeah. So, um, so no beans. Groucho's <laughs> first first name was really Julius. Harpo's first name was Arthur, but previously Adolf. Um, Chico was Leonard. Gummo was Milton. And Zeppo was Herbert. Oh, so uh-huh. not much better, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe we have to do an episode on the Marx Brothers because they, they still come up like they're still like an inspiration for so many things. In oh, comedy. yeah. So, yeah. A lot of quotes from Groucho Marx that, yeah. you know. Did you know that that wasn't a mustache? What? That wasn't a mustache. It's grease paint. <laughs> yeah. Like he didn't have a, a mustache. Oh. Like if you see like a, a like a headshot of oh, okay. him. Okay. It's just black grease paint. Ac- no, I didn't know that. Nose. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. I'll How have about to take that? A look. All right. Well. Look for an upcoming episode <laughs> on the Marx, Marx Brothers. Brothers after we watch all of their back catalog. Yep. Um, so other people that hung out with them were included actresses Blythe Daly, Eve LaGallienne, Margalow Gilmore, Estelle Winwood, and Peggy Wood. Oh. Also writers Jane Grant, Herman Mankiewicz, Alice Dewar Miller, Frank Sullivan, and Margaret Leach. Uh, playwrights Beatrice Kaufman and Donald Ogden Stewart. The magazine illustrator Nasa McMine and the composer Deems Taylor. Wow, that must have been a big table. <laughs> it was a big, you have to was shout. a big round table. You have to shout across that table. <laughs> so um, Dorothy's classic caustic wit as a critic initially proved popular, but she was eventually dismissed by Vanity Fair in 1920 after her criticisms too often offended powerful producers. Uh, BT Dubs, if you see that phrase caustic wit in a trivia question, it is almost certainly referring to Dorothy Parker. Yeah. Um, she soon started working for Ainsley's Magazine and published pieces in Vanity Fair, which was happier to publish her than employ her, yeah. as well as in the Smart Set, the American Mercury, Ladies Home Journal, Saturday Evening Post, and Life. Uh, When Harold Ross founded The New Yorker in 1925, Parker and Robert Benchley were part of a board of editors established to handle concerns of his investors. So Parker's first piece for the magazine was published in The New Yorker's second issue. She became very legendary for her short, viciously humorous poems, many (laughs) highlighting ludicrous aspects of her many, largely unsuccessful, romantic affairs and black humor poems that considered the appeal of suicide. Very emo. The next 15 years were Parker's greatest period of productivity and success. In the 1920s alone, she published about 300 poems and free verses in Vanity Fair, Vogue, and The New Yorker, as well as in Life, McCall's, and The New Republic. Parker published her first volume of poetry, Enough Rope, in 1926. The nation described it as, quote, caked with a salty humor, rough with splinters of delusion, and tarred with a bright black authenticity. Wow. Yeah. Two of her other collections of poetry you should know are 1928's Sunset Guns, and 1931's Death and Taxes. Death and Taxes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, some of Parker's most popular works were reviews published in The New Yorker between 1927 and 1933 in the poem of acerbic book reviews under the byline Constant Reader. Oh, okay. so you might have heard of some of those, and they've been they've been kind of published again as a yeah. book. But like you know, like she's just like, oh, can you believe this? And there's a famous like anecdote that she you know that she wrote up after she read like the house at Pooh corner oh she said something like <laughs> she was mad that like Pooh called it like hummy instead of honey oh and yeah. she was like at that mention of hummy constant weed of food up like <laughs> it's very like very uh over it she's nasty yeah her best known short story was called big blonde and that was an account of an aging party girl that was published in the bookman magazine it won the o henry award as the best short story of 1929 wow um Parker had a number of affairs, including with the reporter-turned-playwright Charles MacArthur and the publisher Seward Collins. Her relationship with MacArthur resulted in a pregnancy, Uh-oh. and Parker is alleged to have said, how like me to put all my eggs into one bastard. <laughs> 
Ah, uh, that's not how that works, Dor. <laughs> uh, she terminated the pregnancy and fell into a depression that culminated in her first attempt at suicide. Oh, oh but hey, back to the round table. Um, in addition to the daily luncheons, members of the round table worked and associated with each other almost constantly. The group was devoted to games, including cribbage and poker. FYI, cribbage is a card game traditionally for two players, but commonly played with three, four or more that involves playing and grouping cards and combinations that gain points. So cribbage has several distinctive features. The cribbage board used for scorekeeping, the eponymous crib, which is a separate hand counting for the dealer, two distinct scoring stages called the play and the show, and a unique scoring system, including points for groups of cards that total 15. It has been characterized as Britain's national card game and is the only one legally playable on licensed premises, pubs and clubs, without <laughs> requiring local authority permission that sounds complicated just your little sidebar on cribbage because i didn't know what the heck it was <laughs> the group had its own poker club called the thanatopsis literary and inside straight club oh like gosh. not just like hey our hey you want to meet up with club. our poker club no they called it the thanatopsis literary and inside straight club that met at the hotel on saturday nights Regulars at the game included Kaufman, Adams, Brown, Ross, and Wolcott, with non-round tablers sometimes sitting in. The group also played charades, so that they called the game, and the I can give you a sentence game that spawned Dorothy Parker's memorable sentence using the word horticulture. She said, you can lead a horticulture, but you can't make her think. That's pretty good. Yeah. Oh, that's very good. Mm-hmm. Wow. So... Members often visited Neshobi Island, which was a private island co-owned by several the Algonks and located on several acres in the middle of Lake Bomacine in Vermont. There, they would engage in their usual array of games, including wink murder and croquet. Um, a number of roundtablers were also inveterate practical jokers who constantly pulled pranks on one another. Um, as time went on, the jokes became ever more elaborate. Um, Harold Ross and Jane Grant once spent weeks playing a particularly memorable joke on Wolcott that involved a prized portrait of himself. They had several copies made, each slightly more askew than the last, and they would periodically secretly swap them out and later comment to Wolcott, what on earth is wrong with your portrait? Until until Wolcott was like ready to lose his mind. (laughs) That is so good. That's a great, that is the best use the best fun use of gaslighting <laughs> I have ever heard. Oh my gosh. They sound like a fun bunch, like rich, fun yeah. people. So as members of the round table moved into ventures outside New York city, inevitably the group drifted apart. Um, by the early 1930s, the vicious circle was broken. Oh, Edna Ferber said she realized it when she arrived at the Rose Room for lunch one day in 1932 and found the group's table occupied by a family from Kansas. Aww. Some members of the group remained friends after its dissolution. Uh, Parker and Benchley in particular remained close up until his death in 1945, though her political leanings did strain their relationship. Others, as the group itself would come to understand when it gathered following Wolcott's death in 1943, simply realized they had nothing to say to one another. Because a number of the members of the roundtable had regular newspaper columns, the activities and quips of various roundtable members were reported in the national press. Uh, This brought roundtablers widely into the public consciousness as renowned wits. But not all of their contemporaries were fans of the group. Their critics accused them of log rolling or exchanging favorable plugs of one another's works and rehearsing their witticisms in advance. James Thurber, who lived in the hotel, was a detractor of the group, um, accusing them of being too consumed by their elaborate practical jokes. Um, the reporter H.L. Mencken, who was like much admired by many in the circle, was also actually a critic, commenting that, quote, their ideals were those of a vaudeville actor, one who is extremely in the know and inordinately trashy. Groucho Marx, the brother of Harpo Marx, Uh-oh. was never comfortable amidst the, well, viciousness of the vicious circle. And he once remarked, quote, the price of admission is a serpent's tongue and a half concealed stiletto. Wow. Still sounds fun. I mean, <laughs> still sounds pretty yeah, fun to me. Yeah. <laughs> But back to Dorothy. Um, In 1932, Parker met Alan Campbell, an actor who wanted to also be a screenwriter. Um, He was bisexual, and Dorothy proclaimed in public that he was queer as a billy goat. (laughs) Together, the pair moved to Hollywood and signed 10-week contracts with Paramount Pictures, with Campbell, who was also expected to act, earning $250 a week, and Parker earning $1,000 a week. Wow, that's pretty nice. They would eventually earn $2,000, and in some instances, upward of $5,000 per week as freelancers for various studios. Um, She and Campbell worked on more than 15 films. In 1936, Parker contributed lyrics for the song I Wished on the Moon with music by Ralph Ranger, and that song was introduced in the comedy film The Big Broadcast of 1936, sung by Bing Crosby. With Campbell and Robert Carson, she wrote the script for the 1937 film A Star is Born, for which they were nominated for an Academy Award for Best Writing. Are you serious? Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. That's crazy. 
After the U.S. entered World War II, Parker and Alexander Wolcott collaborated to produce an anthology of her work as part of a series published by Viking Press for servicemen stationed overseas. The volume compiled over two dozen of Parker's short stories, along with selected poems from Enough Rope, Sunset Gun, and Death in Texas. It was published in 1944 under the title The Portable Dorothy Parker. Hers is one of the only three portable series, including volumes devoted to William Shakespeare and the Bible, that have remained in continuous print oh, wow. since okay. the 40s. During the 1930s and 40s, Parker became an increasingly vocal advocate of civil liberties and civil rights and a frequent critic of authority figures. During the Great Depression, she was among numerous intellectuals and artists who became involved in related social movements. Um, She reported in 1937 on the loyalist cause in Spain for the communist magazine, The New Masses. Parker helped to establish the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League in 1936, which the FBI suspected of being a communist party front. Parker also served as chair of the Joint Anti-Fascist Rescue Committee's fundraising arm, Spanish Refugee Appeal. She organized Project Rescue Ship to transport loyalist veterans to Mexico, headed Spanish Children's Relief, and lent her name to various left-wing causes and organizations. Her former roundtable friends saw her less and less. In the publication Red Channels in 1950, Parker was listed as a, say it with me, communist. Sorry. What did you say? I was trying to think of the blacklist, the Hollywood oh. blacklist, but I couldn't think of it in time and I got nervous. <laughs> Sorry. So it ended up coming out as like, blend <laughs> is, co- is the answer communist? It's a communist. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. I was, I was on the right track. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the FBI had a thousand page dossier on her because of her suspected involvement in communism. Because um, remember, it was the era when Senator Joseph McCarthy was freaking sure. out about suspected communists and government in Hollywood. Remember to check out episode 68, Joe McCarthy and the Second Red Scare. It's very good. As a result of the FBI intel, movie studio bosses placed her on the Hollywood blacklist. Her final screenplay was The Fan, a 1949 adaptation of Oscar Wilde's Lady Windermere's Fan. Dorothy's marriage to Alan Campbell was turbulent with the tensions exacerbated by Parker's increasing alcohol consumption and oh. Campbell's long-term affair with a married woman in Europe during Uh-oh. World War II. They divorced in 1947, remarried in 1950, and they separated in 1952 when Parker moved back to New York. From 1957 to 1962, she lived at a residential hotel on Manhattan's Upper East Side, and she wrote book reviews for Esquire magazine. Her writing became increasingly erratic due to her day, night, and pretty much all the times in between drinking. Um, She returned to Hollywood in 1961, reconciled with Campbell, and collaborated with him on a number of unproduced projects until Campbell died from a drug overdose in 1963. Another good tidbit of info. Uh, there are conflicting stories about the t- origin of the term friend of Dorothy as oh, 20th yeah. century slang for a gay man. But one possible theory is that it does refer to Dorothy Parker. Oh, I didn't know According that. According to a letter written to the LA Times in 2001, Parker notoriously invited gays galore to jazz age social <laughs> gatherings and many of them told friends. During Prohibition, guys whose names weren't on the guest list crashed the gate as friends of Dorothy, an idiom among Manhattan socialites referring to any unfamiliar character. Oh, I see. Okay. There is another popular theory that it refers to Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Um, they said in the 1909 sequel, The Road to Oz, readers are introduced to a character named Polychrome, who, upon meeting Dorothy's traveling companions, exclaims, you have some queer friends, Dorothy. And she replies, the queerness doesn't matter so long as they're friends. So, oh, okay. There's, it, I, I can see it being both or yeah, either, but that's honestly. A, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, sidebar. In the early 1980s, the Naval Investigative Service was investigating homosexuality in the Chicago area, and agents discovered that gay men sometimes referred to themselves as friends of Dorothy. Unaware of the historical meaning of the term, the NIS believed that there were actually was a woman named Dorothy <laughs> at the center of a massive ring of homosexual military <laughs> personnel. So they launched an enormous and futile hunt for the elusive Dorothy, oh hoping to find her and convince her to reveal the names of the gay service members. <laughs> That's very funny. There's just this one Dorothy sitting on a yeah. throne of gays. <laughs> like, a, like a spider in a web. In her later years, uh, Parker besmeagered the Algonquin Roundtable, oh, even no. though it brought her such early notoriety. She said, quote, think who was writing in those days. Lardner, Fitzgerald, Faulkner, and Hemingway. Those were the real giants. The round table was just a lot of people telling jokes and telling each other how good they were. Just a bunch of loudmouths showing off, saving their gags for days, waiting for a chance to spring them. There was no truth in anything they said. It was the terrible day of the wisecrack, so there didn't have to be any truth. I mean, 
That's a little harsh. I mean, it sounded like they had a good time. They yeah. weren't trying to do anything other than just entertain each yeah, other. Yeah, she, she got a little bitter and angry toward the yeah, end. Yeah, I can see that. Um, I have a mini game for you. Oh, a mini game in the middle of the Oh my episode. God, I'm so excited. Okay, okay, mini game. Ready? This is a quick game. Who said it? Dorothy Parker or someone on RuPaul's Drag Race? <laughs> Ready? <laughs> okay, you just have to tell me DP or RP. Okay. <laughs> okay. Men seldom make passes at girls who wear glasses. That's uh, that's Dorothy Parker. It is Dorothy Parker. Yeah. I require three things in a man. He must be handsome, ruthless, and stupid. That's Dorothy Parker. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I'd rather have a bottle in front of me than a frontal lobotomy. <laughs> that's RuPaul, isn't it? <laughs> no, is it Dorothy? Dorothy? Oh, my God. Uh, the first thing I do in the morning is brush my teeth and sharpen my tongue. Ooh. Is that Dorothy? It is Dorothy. Okay. Uh, I was too fucking busy and vice versa. <laughs> That's Dorothy. Yeah. <laughs> um, heterosexuality is not normal. It's just common. Uh, that's Dorothy. Mm-hmm. Is this all Dorothy? And if you can't love yourself, how in the hell are you going to love somebody else? Can I get an amen up in here? That's RuPaul. <laughs> yes. Um, and FYI, in 2018, American drag queen Ms. Cracker played Parker in the celebrity yes. impersonation game show episode of season 10 of RuPaul's Drag Race. Yes, and she did very well. So our girl Dorothy Parker, she died on June 7th, 1967 of a heart attack at the age of 73. In her will, she bequeathed her estate to Martin Luther King Jr. What? Yeah. So this is 67. But following King's death the following year, her estate was bequeathed by his family to the NAACP. Oh, wow. Yeah. I had no idea. That's amazing. Yeah. Holy cow. Uh, Parker left her ashes to playwright Lillian Hellman, who never bothered to collect them. Uh, They went unclaimed for years and were passed around rather unceremoniously, spending about 17 years in her lawyer's filing cabinet. Oh, my God. And the NAACP finally claimed what was left of Miss Parker and erected a memorial garden in her honor. Um, You can visit her there and read what she suggested for her own epitaph, which is, excuse my dust. That's very good. Yes. Um, the Algonquin Roundtable, as well as a number of the other literary and theatrical greats who lodged there, helped to earn the Algonquin Hotel its status as a New York City historic landmark designated in 1987. In 1996, the hotel was designated a national literary landmark by Friends of the Libraries USA based on the contributions of the Roundtable Wits. The organization's bronze plaque is attached to the front of the hotel. Um, there's a 1987 film about the members of the table called The Ten Year Lunch, uh, which won the Academy Award for Best Doc documentary feature oh wow and i want to check that out it yeah sounds me too really that sounds great um and again if you prefer movies to books the film mrs parker and the vicious circle from 1994 recounts the round table from the perspective of dorothy parker That's so amazing. yeah a couple of good uh good film picks to kind of go along with this um and then one last bonus uh bonus trivia um amy sherman paladino's production <laughs> company created in 1996 is called dorothy parker drank here productions oh i had no idea that's yeah. so funny that's she's hysterical funny. Yes. So that's that was great. There you are. I'm so glad she lived so long. I mean, considering yeah. she had uh, a lot of lot, lot of turbulence, a lot of ups and downs there in her in her relationships and stuff. But her writing is, you know, it it's, holds up. To oh this my day. gosh, it's so funny. Yeah, she's great. Awesome. <laughs> well, thanks, Jewel. That was great. So our quiz is: you want a round table? This is a quiz on famous pieces of furniture and the legendary King Arthur. Oh boy. Question one. Their ability to afford such spacious Manhattan real estate is often discussed. But seriously, how did they always end up getting the same seats at a heavily trafficked coffee shop? Okay, that's not the real question. But related, what color was the reserved couch at Central Perk where the cast of Friends always managed to congregate? Question two. What is the three-word term for the body of medieval literature and legendary material associated with Great Britain, in which one can find the origins of King Arthur? France and Rome also have their own great story cycles, titled with two-thirds of the same words. Question three. Mekalika hi, mekahini ho. Which offbeat children's TV program featured a cast of puppet and object characters that included Clocky and Cherry? Question four. This multiple choice question is sponsored by Ancestry.com. Uther Pendragon is of what relation to King Arthur? A, his father. B, his first son. C, his older brother. Or D, his dog. 
Question five. The Addams Family Pinball Game, released in 1992, is the best-selling pinball game of all time. To trigger the Vault Multiball, players must hit a specific target on the playfield five times to spell the word greed. After that, the target rotates, exposing the vault. What piece of furniture disguises the entrance to the vault, located in the top right quadrant of the Addams Family Pinball? Question six. In Arthurian legend, what is the title of the wounded man charged with keeping the Holy Grail? It's also the name of a 1991 Terry Gilliam film, which somehow is Gilliam's second movie involving the Grail. Question 7. Don't be a meathead. The beige armchair of which controversial and comedic 1970s American sitcom patriarch is in the permanent collection of the National Museum of American History. Question 8. Uh, there was a real Peyton Place situation all up in Camelot. King Arthur's wife, Guinevere, began an intense, adulterous relationship with his best friend that basically ruined Arthur's kingdom and branded Arthur a cuckold. Which brave knight caused all this drama just because he couldn't keep it in his codpiece? Question 9. Readers of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory accepted the nightmare scenario that Charlie Bucket's four grandparents were all bedridden to the same bed. Grandpa Joe eventually arose to accompany Charlie on the tour of Wonka's factory, but what were the names of the other three old people with whom he formerly shared a bed? And question 10. In the Kingsman movie series, each of the Kingsman agents is named after one of the Knights of the Round Table. What is the code name of Eggsy, played by Taron Edgerton, which is also that of his mentor, Harry Hart? I'll give you about a minute to think, and we'll be back with your answers. Oh my god. Okay, all right, I'll try. Let's go. Question one. Their ability to afford such spacious Manhattan real estate is often discussed, but seriously, how do they always get the same seats at a heavily trafficked coffee shop? Okay, that's not the real question. But related, what color was the reserved couch at Central Perk where the cast of Friends always managed to congregate? Um, It was definitely velvet. It was like a velvet. Mm -hmm. Was it red or orange? Which one are are you saying is your answer? I'm going to say orange. It was orange. Oh, yes. Uh, I would accept any variant of orange, basically. Okay. Um, it had it also had like a gold fringe, like tassel-y yeah. type stuff at the base of it. Yep. It's apparently very iconic. Great. Question two. What is the three-word term for the body of medieval literature and legendary material associated with Great Britain, in which one can find the origin of King Arthur? France and Rome also have their own great story cycles titled with two-thirds of the same words. It's not the Book of Kells. I know no. that. That's Ireland. Mm-hmm. The Book of Kells is just like a Bible from a um, from the Abbey. Oh, right, called yeah, Kells yeah. from the eighth century. Oh, I I do not know. Okay, this and you should know it. It's called the Matter of Britain. The Matter. The Matter. M a t t e r of Britain this is, is the, the f- body of medieval literature and legendary material associated with Great Britain. Um, so in um. In France, it's the matter of France, and in Italy, it's the matter of Rome. So uh, France concerns the legends of Charlemagne, and the matter of Rome includes material derived from or inspired by classical mythology. And so those are like the yeah. like the early bodies of work that have influenced all of, you know, literature and history. This is the first I am hearing of this. Never heard I, of this? I cannot oh, believe it. I've I'm gone so this sorry. long. No, I am, I'm sorry, because I am clearly... <laughs> You're an English major. I know. I am a dunce. <laughs> 
Stop. <laughs> so Arthur is the chief subject of the matter of Britain, along with stories related to the legendary kings of the British, as well as lesser known topics related to the history of Great Britain and Brittany, such as the stories of Brutus of Troy, mm. Cole Hine, Lear of Britain, and Gog Magog. I don't Gog know who Magog. Gog Magog is. Gog Magog, that come that's like that's tickling something in the back of my brain, Gog Magog. <laughs> Not sure what it is. So um, three of the Arthurian authors that you got to know are Geoffrey of Monmouth, Chrétien de Troyes, and Marie de France. So if um, if you're seeing a question that deals with medieval literature and Britain, it's probably Geoffrey of Monmouth. Mm. If it's not Chaucer, but you know. Sure, yeah. Um, And then if it's France, it's either Marie de France or Chrétien de Troyes. Okay. Christian of Troyes and Marie of France. Great. Okay, all right. I had to read some of their stuff. Uh, Question three. Mechalaka High, Mechahiney Ho. Which offbeat children's TV program featured a cast of puppet and object characters that included Clocky and Cherry? Um, That's, uh, um, oh my God, why can't I think of the name of it? Go ahead, describe it then. It's, you you know, he, it's Paul Rubens. He's wearing a, it's a TV show. It's called... uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> it's called. He's called. His name is. <clears throat> I just gotta let my brain relax. Mm-hmm. I just gotta let oh, my brain yeah. relax. Pee wee, Pee wee's playhouse. Pee wee's playhouse. <laughs> Good job. Thank you. Great job. Uh, yes, it was Pee wee's playhouse. So the premise of the show was that host Pee wee Herman went to play in a fantastic house situated in Puppet Land, known as the Playhouse, which was filled with toys, gadgets, talking furniture, and appliances. Um, Clocky was a yellow and red clock shaped like a map of the United States, and Cherry was a bluish green armchair with eyes on the chair back and the mouth between the seat cushions. Um, I, I love Cherry. I found it for some strange reason as a child i found that show extremely disturbing uh and i'm not entirely sure why yeah Hmm. uh yeah maybe it was the all the anthropomorphic uh furniture that really bothered me on a visceral level but yeah i'm sorry i don't mean to stir up anything (laughs) no it's totally fine i'll i'll take a sleeping pill tonight and i'll be okay question four this multiple choice question is sponsored by ancestry.com Uther Pendragon is of what relation to King Arthur? A, his father. B, his first son. C, his older brother. Or D, his dog. I'm going to say his older brother. Is it his dog? Uther Pendragon is King Arthur's father. Oh, okay. A, father. Um, Uther is described as a strong king and defender of the people. And upon Uther's death, the 15-year-old Arthur succeeds him as king of Britain. Okay. Question five. The Adams Family Pinball Game, released in 1992, is the best-selling pinball game of all time. What piece of furniture disguises the entrance to the vault located in the top right quadrant of the Adams Family Pinball? Uh, I don't know. Is it a bookshelf? It's a bookcase. Oh, okay. Great. Yeah. Great. So um, the player can add letters to the word greed by hitting the bookcase in front of the vault, and spelling greed opens the bookcase, revealing a shot into the vault that can be used to lock or hold balls for the multiball. Great. It's a fun game. It's my favorite pinball game. I, uh, I think I... W- I, where were we? Oh, we were at we were at the strong. Yeah, it was some <clears throat> older, you know, it was like the older crowd, twenty one and over thing. And I played like three pinball machines because I didn't have anything else yeah. to do. I still do not know how to play oh, pinball. Yeah, what? you get. I mean, you, you just, get a couple of balls and you just yeah, flip just flap them the flappers. Bloop, 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 bloop. Yeah, you don't have to have any like. It's not like a skill involved. I mean, some people do. I mean, there's Tommy. That's the whole thing about the pinball wizard. (laughs) (laughs) Josh seems to really like it. So, uh, yeah, it's fun. Adam's family pinball is really fun. Um, There apparently is like a story that goes with it when you're playing too. So you got to follow the lights on the play field and kind of go where the ball, where send the ball where the lights are flashing, that kind of stuff. That helps. All right. Mm -hmm. All right. Question six. In Arthurian legend, what is the title of the wounded man charged with keeping the Holy Grail? It's also the name of a 1991 Terry Gilliam film, which somehow is Gilliam's second movie involving the Holy Grail. I have no idea. Okay. What's it called? He's called the Fisher King. What? 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 I thought that was just a movie starring Robin Williams. <laughs> well, yes, it's about the Holy Grail. Yeah, but I thought he was just a crazy person. <laughs> I mean, it's been a while since I've seen it. <laughs> what? 
So the Fisher King is also known as the Wound King or the Maimed King, and he is the okay. last in a long line charged with keeping the Holy Grail. All he is able to do is fish in a small boat on the river near his castle called Corbenic and wait for a noble who might be able to heal him by asking him a certain question. So apparently there's some like backstory where like he got like shot in the in the gullet the the, the lower, side lower the groin the groin <laughs> yes by like an arrow or something and so he is he's known as the wounded or maimed king okay. um but he is the the keeper of the holy grail and so apparently like if you're if you're the person that's supposed to find the holy grail you know what to ask him and it would heal him and then you would get and the, holy, you grail would get the holy grail and he'd be mm-hmm. free forever yep the fisher king oh how about that wow i got a lot to think about <laughs> okay Question seven. Don't be a meathead. The beige armchair of which controversial and comedic 1970s American sitcom patriarch is in the permanent collection of the National Museum of American History. His name is Alfred. L? Is it L? No. No. Is it Adam? No. Art. Garfunkel. Art. 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 Archie? Archie? Yes! Get there! Get there! Finish it! Archie... 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 Bunker? It's Archie Bunker! 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 Oh my god! The amount of sounds that all came out of your throat all at once. It was very That's good. I had to get there. Oh my god! Uh, I'm sorry, everybody. I'm I'm getting over a cold, and my brain isn't firing. The synapses aren't firing as fast as they normally do. So I apologize, but I got there. Archie Bunker. Archie Bunker was played by Carol O'Connor. <laughs> Carol O'Connor. Yeah, bless you're him. right. Yeah, oh, he's so beautiful. He's such uh, a great man. <laughs> Archie was a World War II veteran, blue-collar worker, and family man described as a lovable bigot. Um, in 2005, Archie Bunker was listed as number one on Bravo's 100 Garrettist TV characters, defeating Ralph Cramden, Lucy Ricardo, Fonzie, and Homer Simpson. Wow. Yeah. Question eight. There was a real Peyton Place situation all up in Camelot. King Arthur's wife, Guinevere, began an intense, adulterous relationship with his best friend that basically ruined Arthur's kingdom and branded Arthur a cuckold. Which brave knight caused all this drama just because he couldn't keep it in his codpiece? Is that Lancelot? It is Lancelot. Okay, good. Ultimately, Lancelot's affair with Guinevere is a destructive force. Once revealed to Arthur, this results in the death of three of the knight Gawain's brothers at Lancelot's hand while he rescued Guinevere from being burned at the stake for her infidelity. Also, a war raged against Lancelot by the vengeful Gawain and King Arthur in France, and then Arthur's nephew, Mordred, went and tried to seize the throne for himself. It was a big, big mess. Like, Lancelot... It's your best friend's wife, man. Yeah, like there are a lot of a lot of ladies out there. Yes, and you are a handsome, chivalrous yes. knight. You can get whomever you want. Yep. You so really? like it got out there, and like it was like a like a open secret. Like everybody except Arthur. Like oh, knew. that's the worst. Yeah. Oof. Question nine. Readers of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory accepted the nightmare scenario that Charlie Bucket's four grandparents were all bedridden to the same bed. Grandpa Joe eventually arose to accompany Charlie on the tour of Wonka's factory. But what were the names of the other three old people with whom he formerly shared a bed? Okay. So it's uh-huh. Grandpa Joe mm-hmm. and Grandma Josephine. Yes. And then there's Grandpa George uh-huh. and Grandma Georgina. Yes. You got it. I got it. You got it. Yep. And finally, question 10. In the Kingsman movie series, each of the Kingsman agents is named after one of the Knights of the Round Table. What is the code name of Eggsy, played by Taron Edgerton, which is also that of his mentor, Harry Hart? I feel terrible about this because it was, I think, our favorite movie of 2016. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, I don't remember. Was it Lancelot? That's the, my, that was my first thought, but it's not. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're shaking your head at me. Mm-hmm. I can't think of any other knights of the round table. Okay. Was it? No, I don't know. Go ahead. Tell me. It was Galahad. Galahad. Yeah. Yes, because he's so brave. Yes. Yeah. So um, Roxy Morton, who is the only female Kingsman, has the codename Lancelot. Okay. Um, Arthur is the codename for the leader of Kingsman. And Merlin is the codename for their trainer and tech coordinator. Yes. Yeah. Great movies. Oh. oh, so good. Second one got a little, it got a little, got a little weird. weird, but a little that's weird. okay. No, it's still that's pretty good. right. Yeah. Better than a lot of the stuff out there. Yeah. Hell yeah. (laughs) 
So <laughs> you did great. Yeah, you know, I really, worked out Arthur than you thought you did. I I got there. I got there, and you know what? That's all that matters. So uh, we do have a couple more. Um, we have a couple more. Ready? Here we go. Yeah. Listener submitted trivia. Ooh, we got a little like we got a little harmony on that. Okay. Mm. Um, so we had a couple from last week and now we've got a couple this week. So, uh, from Michael H, um, we got, uh, the word apron is a great example of rebracketing. Mm-hmm. Uh, in middle English, it was a, a napron, uh-huh. uh, then between words being written very close together and speech having no word boundaries, the N jumped over and now we have an apron. That's really, really interesting. It's so interesting. I loved that. Um, yes. And then we also got from Anna G. Uh, the first lead female superhero in a comic was in 1940, which was before Wonder Woman in 1941, and was Marvel, which was uh, timely comics at the time. And her name was Black Widow. And she says, but not the Scarlett Johansson one. She would kill evildoers and deliver their souls to Satan. <laughs> And she wrote, a, she wrote it just like that. She wrote it just she like that. She's very metal. Very, very metal. metal. Yes. Um, and then uh, one from Twitter um, from Elizabeth M uh, regarding our Eurovision episode. Uh-huh. She said, the only other thing I knew about it is that Riverdance burst onto the scene during the interval in 1994 in Dublin, stealing the show. And then she put a heart emoji and then a four leaf clover emoji. <laughs> and then she said, checking the date, I discovered that Michael Flatley holds the Guinness book record for taps per second at 35. What? But he has a rival who claims he's done 38. And then she wrote juicy. That's how That's is that so, even possible? Like, you go, 1,001. That was 35 tests. <laughs> His feet must be vibrating. That's mind-blowing. That's mind-blowing. I have never I have never wished to tap dance, and I have never wished to tap dance Well, we'll fast. never be as good as him. No, I mean, so, you might as well not even bother. That's the one thing we'll never be as good at. And you know what? That's okay. I mean, he's yeah. got the Guinness book record, so there you go. Wow. Thanks, guys. <laughs> yeah, those were great. Thank you so much. Um, and if you want to submit some uh, some more listeners submitted trivia, listen to submitted trivia. trivia. <laughs> oh, we both ended up alone out there. This is our remix. Um, <laughs> you can email us uh, just like a couple of those listeners did at misinfopod at gmail.com. You can also tweet at us at misinfopod. Um, you can also, uh, I don't know, write on our Facebook page. Uh, we are Misinformation colon, a trivia podcast. And you can also join us on our website, www.misinfopod.com. Uh, you can listen to us on our website that Lauren just told you the address to. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Sure. Yes. Yeah. And please rate, review, and subscribe, everybody. Yes. And tell a friend. Tell a friend. Um, you have friends. Everybody has friends. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have friends. I definitely have friends, which is a friend, friend, friendly friend. friends. Oh, we have lots of friends. <laughs> um, we don't have to pay. We don't have to pay for that. Do we? That no. we just saying like, no, we just four notes of mm-hmm. crazy ex-girlfriend. Um, so, uh, thanks guys. <laughs> <laughs> we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>